Welcome to Stratford Lutheran's Sermon Podcast. I am Pastor Alex, and this is a podcast that each week will deliver a new sermon message. These are taken directly from our ongoing sermon series, and you can find them in on YouTube if you would like to watch them, but these are here for your listening pleasure. And I am so thankful that you have taken this opportunity to hear this particular sermon. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. I am on Instagram at quorum.dale.life. You can reach me at Undying Light Ministries as I host that podcast, Undying Light. And I'm a co-host of a Matter of Truth podcast. This is just a means to allow my sermons to uh, be listened to at your convenience as a listener. And again, I just want to say I am very appreciative of you taking this opportunity to listen. Now, here's this week's sermon. signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, and Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. The psalm is Psalm 114, and we'll be doing it as a responsive reading. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, the sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. The 
What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. The second lesson is taken from Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at this, at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled, repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. If you would please rise for the reading of God's word. Beginning in Exodus chapter 3, the first verse. Now Moses was keeping the flock with his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. 
And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and, they have heard my, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out into the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place where the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Pezzarites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression which, with which the Egyptian, Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh and that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, and that you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The word of God. You may be seated. We begin our series once again, looking at the stories throughout uh, the Bible, uh, many of which we have heard about in some form or fashion during our time as children and during Sunday school and through confirmation and hopefully as young adults and adults as well. We begin our time now in the book of Exodus, and we will begin by looking at Moses for the next couple of weeks. Now, Moses is an interesting character as he has a lot of depth to his story. And Moses essentially will become a key figure as we will carry on through the rest of the Old Testament. And unfortunately, we won't have the time to exhaust all of the stories of Moses, but we will hit some of the ones that we are all familiar with. And one of those is which... We find ourselves in Exodus chapter 3 with the burning bush. But before we get into the context surrounding this passage, I couldn't help but be captivated by this one phrase that God says, I am. This is an interesting title that he gives himself, and I couldn't help but think of a title that has ultimate authority. When we think of titles in this world, we are instantly drawn to maybe people who are of civil servants, the police officers and firefighters, judges, lawyers, things like that. But then we can also apply this title of authority to our workforce, and we see people in the, as a CEO or a CFO or the president of a company. 
They demand respect and authority because of the title they carry. And then there's the titles that are respectful to the office and the person who holds those offices, the president, vice president, chambers, uh, the speaker of the house, and so on for our U.S. government. And as we assert these titles, they have a certain premise, but they're limited in the overall value. Because see, as somebody may be president, they're not president for eternity. They're, they're president for four to eight years. As somebody might be the CEO of a company, they're not the CEO of eternity. They're the CEO of a very small window in their time being with that company. They might end up being there their entire career. It could be 30, 40 years, but that's even short. That's a speck of dust in our eyes of eternity. But what we get in this title that God gives us in Exodus 3.15 is this, I am. That encompasses everything. There is nothing higher than this title. There's no more authority that can be given to God because he has all authority. And so while we can assert titles in various positions in our lives, we just know that our titles that we would recognize or we carry are finite. They will expire at some point. But the title that God gives himself throughout the Old Testament, the many names that he carries, are names that are eternal, names that will long pass through this world. And I find that to be an interesting notion as we come into this new time with our journey through the Bible and we look at Exodus. And we'll be spending a, a number of weeks here. We won't, again, exhaust everything that Moses does because already we've skipped two chapters of the book of Exodus. So we will hit these finer points and we will dig into the text and hopefully keep us up on what is going on in the particular climax of the story. But we see God addressing himself in this fashion. Tell them that I am who I am. Tell them that the I am sent you. Now, if you were to walk into a building today and say, I am sent me, that might seem a little bit out of the ordinary. Because many people in the world may not even recognize who you're referring to. If I were to just stand up here in the pulpit and shout to the congregation, I am sent me, you might actually recognize who that I am is. Because you are familiar with this title. You're familiar with this name given to God. But those outside of the church may not recognize it. And so it's an interesting notion because God not only just says, go and say, I am sent you. He says that the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac has sent you. So this is starting to bring that familiarity that Moses will now carry as he goes and talks to the Israelites who are in bondage in Egypt. So I think it helps us to unpack and, and dig into a little bit of the context surrounding what is happening here in chapter 3. We have Moses encountering God for the first time. But before we dig into this conversation, let's rewind a little bit. We left off just before Lent started with the time with Joseph. 
and concluding our time with patriarchs. Now, if we remember Joseph's story, we remember that this was the bringing of the nation of Israel to Egypt. And so Egypt now essentially not only had the Egyptians, but had the Israelites working and living in their land. And now we will move through a period of about 400 to 430 years where we don't have any sort of story coming out of the Israelite history. There's nothing that has given us the information of what is happening in particular individuals' lives. We leave it end at Joseph. Joseph has now died, and now we move on to Moses, who comes some 400 years after. And Moses is the one, interestingly enough, who coins all of Genesis, Exodus, and so on. So he writes the Torah for us. And he doesn't give us any sort of information between Genesis and Exodus. And so we come into this new climate with the nation of Israel, essentially with their first period of suffering. The first time that Israel is actually being oppressed. Because, see, they're not just enjoying a blissful life here in Egypt. They have now been enslaved. Because as we enter into this book, we see that there has been a new king in Egypt that has ascended to the throne. And this particular king does not recognize or even remember who Joseph was and the promises of the previous pharaohs to Joseph and his people. And so he sees that Israel is growing and multiplying and they're becoming a mighty people. And so he moves to enslave them to essentially re reduce their threats. <laughs> so as I mentioned, our timeline is about 400 to 430 years of enslavement. This is now carried on from these pharaohs to the next pharaoh and so on, that they continue to enslave the nation of Israel. And if we remember, all the way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, we have this prophecy given to Abraham by God that his people, the nation of Israel, will be sojourners in a land, which is now Egypt, and they will be there for 400 years. And then after we have this conversation with Moses in the burning bush, and we see that Moses will now go and stand before Pharaoh, and we have this essential life of Moses that will cascade over the next couple of weeks, we have a total of about 430 years, as Exodus 12 will point to us. So we find ourselves in this wonderful new book of the history of Israel. We find ourselves seeing what happened and how God will deliver Israel out of this oppression, out of the enslavement that they have been put under. So we will hit some of the highlights of Moses in the coming weeks. We will spend a day or on the uh, 10 plagues that he will call forward to Egypt, and then we will see the crossing of the Red Sea in the time of the wilderness, etc., etc. But I want to focus solely today on this conversation between God and Moses. And I would hope that we are all familiar with this burning bush. It is one that seems to echo through the church history and one that seems to be commonly referred to as Exodus 3.15 is a verse that most Christians, if not all Christians, should be familiar with because it is asserting to Moses who God is. To Moses who 
never knew God, never spoke to God. We have no prior history other than the birth of Moses and his brief time serving under his father. And so now we have this first conversation with Moses and God, and we see this burning bush coming forward and speaking to Moses. If we go back to the very, very beginning of this series, as we started in Genesis chapter 1 and worked ourselves through the book, we had this theme that cascaded and will continue to draw forward through the Old Testament, is that we serve a God that provides. We will see that as a means in today's message, but more so we will see that as Moses stands before Pharaoh. He gives Moses what is needed, the courage, the, the determination, the willpower, and the means. But now that we pick up in Exodus, I want to also apply this theme to it. That not only does God provide for us, but that we serve a God who uses means. Now, that might be an interesting thought, but what I want to unpack is what does this truly mean for us? What does it mean that God works to us through means? Well, God uses elements around us to come to us, to deliver us out of something, to speak to us, to reassure us. These means can be found in the bread and the wine that we will partake in next Sunday. They can be found in the water of baptism. They can be found in the sermons. They can be found in his word. Word and sacrament are how God comes to us. And we'll see this heavily demonstrated in the next couple of weeks as God will use various elements to deliver his people out of enslavement. So as we explore this text today, I want us to keep this in the back of our mind, that we are serving this same God that Moses serves. If we were to have a story where Moses was out seeking God and found God in this burning bush, we would have a completely different structure of church. But what instead happens is that God is already there, and he calls to Moses. This is very similar to the call given to Abraham. We have a God who uses a means, the burning bush, to call the people to him, calling Moses. And he asserts who he is by giving the declaration that this, that he is the great I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so we have this means in this burning bush today. And interestingly enough, as Moses records, the bush doesn't burn up. This isn't a regular fire that you may start and you watch the timber crack and burn and eventually turn to ash. This bush does not consume itself. But interestingly enough, we also see that this is a, that this is a means by which God comes to Moses. He doesn't do so in spiritual form. He doesn't do so in physical form as Jacob wrestled with Jesus, the pre-incarnation. But instead, God presents himself to Moses as a burning bush. 
More importantly, this is the one way that God will convey to his people through the spoken word. And as we see here, God is speaking through this bush, delivering to Moses his word. And we also know that through our study of scripture that God uses the sacraments as well to speak to us. And simply this, God does not deal with us in any other means outside of his word and his sacraments. It is only through what is written in scripture, and it is only through what we partake in in the Lord's Supper and in baptism that God speaks to us or deals with us. So keeping this in mind, the means by which God comes to us will help us understand even more so the depths of Scripture. And we will see that God uses means, whether it's people or elements or catastrophes, to draw his people to him. This ability, they gave us this ability to see who God is. And more so, these means, these sacraments, this word of God, is by which we know that we serve the God who comes to us. It is not us going to God. We are not out searching for him and finding him in these various places. See, we have a God, as I mentioned in the time in Genesis, that essentially will interrupt our lives. We serve a God who will jump in at probably the most inconvenient time in our life and call us to him. We serve a God who does not care about the overwebbings of the world, but what he cares about is the people that he reaches through his spoken word, through the sacraments. And so God is not inferred upon by any sort of means going on in the world, but he will interject himself when he desires to do so. And that is what we have now. After 400 and some years, God is presenting himself to Moses to rescue his people out of Egypt. It has been a time by which God has heard the afflictions of his people. And we now have this new story to work ourselves through in the coming weeks. So as we unpack these verses, I want to draw our eyes to this fifth verse God here is instructing Moses to take off his sandals. Why? He's out in the wilderness. It's dirty. There's dust and debris flying everywhere. But yet God still gives him this interesting instruction. And I find it that there's a little bit of foreshadowing in this particular passage that if we were to jump ahead into where we get the Levitical law, and the building of the tabernacle, and then we go into the time of the temple and the history of Israel, we see that taking off our sandals is a representation of being in holy ground. See, it's not about the dirt or anything that is around, because God doesn't say sweep the dirt away. He says, take your sandals off. You are standing on holy ground. Recognize what I'm telling you. And yet we see that as we go through this time with Israel, that they will try to confine the presence of God to being only in the tabernacle or the temple. They will try to restrict God to being in such a, a small, confined place. But yet what we see throughout Scripture 
is that God just doesn't simply dwell in the tents and buildings of man, but he dwells with his people. And we see that even more so after the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that the people are now no longer required to go to a tabernacle to be in the presence of God. Instead, we see where God tells us he would be in the word and in the sacraments. We don't go searching for God in places that he doesn't say he'll be. Instead, we go searching for God in the places he does say he'll be. Interesting enough, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, that nobody seeks after God. And that is true. Nobody seeks after God. Nobody goes in searching for him. And that is indicated in our passage of Moses here. He's not out searching for God. He's just out simply attending the flock. But what we did is, as Christians, we have been given the revelation, the truth of who God is, and now we are given the fire, the encouragement, the passion to go and seek out God. But yet we still stumble and fall at that at every turn. It is easy for us to simply come to church on Sunday and then brush away from it for the next six days. But we go searching for God in those places he says he'll be. This is why it is crucial for the Christian to partake in Sunday service. This is why it is important for us as Christians to find ways or means by which we can hear the word spoken to us throughout the week, whether it's sermons or Bible studies or small groups, anything of that sort, that we can spend just a few minutes being reminded of the work that God has done for us. It is crucial for the Christian to remember these things because, as Luther says, I need to hear the gospel every day because I forget it. It is easy for us to get lost in the toils of the world and to simply forget the promises that God has given to us. Now I want to get into this conversation with Moses a little bit deeper. We see God calling Moses similar to the call that Abraham received and essentially to the same that the rest of the patriarchs received. He asserts himself as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He tells Moses now that he has seen his affliction of his people and he will now deliver them out of that affliction. He will now provide a land full of milk and honey that he will give to Israel. Moses says now, if I go to the people of Israel saying that the God of their fathers has sent me, what do I say when they ask me your name? And we see God give this profound answer. I am who I am. That's it. There's no other qualifier. There's no other title that drifts on or no other name that needs to be applied. It's simply I am. One of the many great titles given to God throughout the Old Testament. In fact, if we were to do a study on the Hebrew names given to God, we would have a whole list that would take us a year to go through of all the wonderful names applied to God. A title that asserts that there is no other God, there's no other being, there's nothing created like Yahweh. There is no one like God. 
But I want us to get a little bit deeper now still. And as we explore this text, let's jump now to the New Testament. Let's look at John chapter 8, the final closing verses. To summarize what has simply happened here, Jesus is responding to accusations by the Jews that he himself had a demon possess him. So he's out casting out demons, performing miracles, and the Pharisees and scribes are accusing him of having a demon himself. To which Jesus replies to them, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now in the eyes of the Jewish Pharisees, this was a blasphemous statement to make. Because Jesus right here equates himself to be God. Why? Because here in Exodus 3.15, God asserts himself as being the great I am. And Jesus makes that same assertment in John chapter 8. This definitive statement given by Christ shows us the insight in who Moses is really talking to. The pre-incarnation of Christ, God's word. Remember, as we explore the Old Testament, that God comes to us in his word, who is Jesus, and he will come to us through the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And any time we see this incarnation of the Lord in the Old Testament, any time we see the Lord speaking, we know that this is Christ speaking because he is God's word. And as we see here, we will continue to see Jesus coming to Moses over and over throughout our time. And again, even further on into the other stories we will tackle. To further provide some proof to this statement, let's turn to John chapter 5. In the closing verses, Jesus provides some additional proof to his witness. He concludes with this, that if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Powerful statement by Jesus, as we will soon see the connections between who Moses is and who he deals with and who Christ is. Because every time Moses speaks or is spoken to by God, he is speaking to Jesus. Everything that Moses writes about, he's writing about Christ. And I love how Jesus frames it in John 5 there. He says, you search the scriptures for life. But you miss me. You go searching in the scriptures for some sort of special revelation, but you've missed it. I'm standing right in front of you. You don't make that connection. If you believed Moses when he said he spoke to this burning bush, he was speaking to me. The summarization is all of this, all of the Old Testament does nothing but point us to Christ. It is a revealing of who Christ is and what God's redemptive plan for us is. And it is summarized in Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we can embrace as Christians, one that we can cling to this truth that we know, that as Moses stands before this burning bush being addressed to go in front of Israel, we know that Jesus is giving this address Jesus, the great I am. Just as Jesus comes to Moses in the form of the burning bush, he comes to us in the form of his word and sacrament. We will partake in the acknowledgement that Jesus is present with us next week as we 
dig into the Lord's Supper deeper. We will see how even in the sacrament and in his spoken word, in the divine service that we partake in every week, Christ is present. Because where his spoken word is, salvation and faith can be found. Where his spoken word is, Christ is present. So he comes to us in his word, and he comes to us in the sacrament. And this is what he does to deliver us from the measures of our sin and the devil and death. And that he delivers to us a means of assurance and confidence that what we hear every Sunday is in fact true. This is the way he comes to us. No other means through except his word and sacrament. He comes to us to provide assurance of salvation, assurance of eternal life, and confidence of what he says is true. Amen.